This is the politics of everything, and I'm your host, Amber Danes. Welcome to the podcast where we want to discuss the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment to equality, and much more. Our guests are experts in their field or topic of choice, even if you've not yet heard their name. This is a bipartisan podcast. So while we love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate, by no means is this a one-sided forum for any one political view. So please listen up and enjoy the politics of everything. Welcome to the politics of everything. For episode 17, I'm in conversation with Dr. Catherine Kjules, a qualified instructor of mindfulness whose business, Mind and Movement, offers mindfulness training, workshops, programs and retreats to individuals and organizations alike. Catherine has had a career as a lawyer, so she's no stranger to high-pressure work environments. She's also worked in international development, then as an academic and researcher in universities and the community sector. Catherine is a dedicated meditator with over 20 years' experience, so she brings a reflective approach to the introduction of mindfulness in the 21st century. I'm very fascinated to have her here today to unpack the politics of mindfulness. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Amber. So in a nutshell, what is mindfulness really about? It's a really interesting question. And if only there were such a nutshell answer to be able to give. Sometimes I think that talking about mindfulness when people haven't had an actual experience of mindfulness is a little bit like trying to explain how it is to swim in the ocean to somebody who lives in the Saharan desert and never has seen more than a cup full of water. So really, where, where did it begin? I mean, what, what, what's mindfulness really about? Is it accumulation of different theories? Is it to do with cognitive therapies? How, how has it really come to be? Yeah, it's almost the opposite of cognitive therapies. It's in a, inviting us to have a different relationship with thoughts and thinking than we usually do. Normally, we go about our life thinking from thoughts, acting from emotions. Mindfulness invites us into a relationship with thoughts to emotions so that rather than just being driven about by our thoughts and emotions, which are not always accurate and our emotions are often from our old brain's fight or flight system, not always worth just going with. So through mindfulness, we develop the capacity to be working from a position of observer of self, of understanding how the mind works, of seeing emotions come and go, thoughts come and go without necessarily being captivated by them and and driven, really, we then end up in the passenger seat being driven around by thoughts and emotions. So mindfulness puts us back in the driver's seat. That's a great, that sounds amazing. I mean, I have practiced it myself, but it did take me a while to get my head around and see the benefits of it. And I guess from your experience, you know, in your early career as a lawyer, you were obviously exposed to the longer working hours, the crazy deadlines, and perhaps even workplace politics. So did an environment like that somehow lead you to seek alternative ways to relax rather than self-medicating with wine or, you know, other things that people tend to do when they're stressed? Yeah, it's so true that the work environment of the legal profession is not especially supportive of well-being. And, you know, there's been various health reports looking at the legal profession, finding higher levels of mental health issues, depression and that kind of thing. You know, the, the culture of overwork, being the last person in the office, the competitive nature of the profession means many lawyers are actually walking around with chronic low-level anxiety and those non-adaptive ways of coping that you talk about. So for yourself, were you a lawyer when you started to 
become interested in things like mindfulness? Yeah, I was. Fortunately for me, it's an interesting story. You know, nearly 30 years ago now, it was my mum who said, why don't you come along to a meditation group with me? And I'm so grateful that I did. She gave up within the first few months and I kept going. That's amazing. Well, that's great. So obviously, you know, with the 21st century work-life balance debate always about the reality that I guess I, I must admit personally I see it as work-life blending because, you know, we don't really have an off button and the technology actually means that our careers and our personal existences kind of mould, if you like, because you're more mobile but obviously more accessible How do we actually do this better? I mean, how can mindfulness help us when we do feel that we are always on? Yeah, the I'm just thinking of an old mindfulness, well, actually quite a new mindfulness joke where the meditation teacher says to the uh, businessman trying to teach you meditation, okay, I want you to take three deep, slow breaths and then very slowly let go of your mobile phone. Oh, that's great. So one of the things that the research has found is that the the technology, in fact, just before we press Facebook, we are lighting up the same part of our brain as happens for crack cocaine addicts. So there's an addictive quality. Is it like to, dopamine or something like that? Is that what we're talking about? Um, so it's the nucleus ac- acumens, which is a part of the brain that is activated in those situations. So it, it's an activation of the part of the brain and there's a dopamine cycle involved in that. Yeah. Yes. So so that addictive quality, I think we all know that. We all we know that feeling. There's yeah, a even when you said it, I can picture it, you know, you're opening it up or you've posted something you're really excited about and you'd kind of want to know who's liking it, who's commenting, who's sharing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so at at that moment, we're under the control of our old brain. Yes. Yeah. Are you suggesting that we kind of tech off more? I mean, how with the mindfulness practice, does it require a degree of discipline? Oh, absolutely. Most of our lives, we've let our minds just move from one thing to another, to another, to another, whatever's the dominant thing in the environment at that moment. We have been responding to our basic go after desire and run away from things that we don't like. We haven't been practicing approaches to our mind and our body and our emotions that have have been especially supportive of making choices for our well-being. You know, we we do to a certain extent. But yes, there's there's a role to play in learning to sit with impulse, to feel the power of the impulse, see how it has a compulsive quality to it and let it go. And that sounds all very easy and it's not. There's a lot of discipline involved. Oh, no, I, could, I know from my own experience. At first I was like, it's like meditation. It's like this isn't for me. I'm too fidgety. My mm. mind is too, they call me mind and yoga. And I think when we're used to the whole multitasking environment, it does require a different set of skills and discipline, as you say. So just moving a little bit into this deeper, you know, do you think mindfulness is suitable and safe for everyone? That's a great question. And at times people will be drawn to mindfulness for reasons connected with their mental health, which may mean that mindfulness isn't in fact the most appropriate approach. Long periods of meditation give open up space for old stuff, for strong emotions to arise. So from from the perspective of longer practices, there will be certain people that it's not advisable to engage in mindfulness initially. Better to work maybe doing some of the very short practices, working one-on-one with a teacher, involving 
informal mindfulness practices, but the longer sitting meditation practices are not available for people who have, for example, experiencing psychotic episodes, for people who are still in a serious situation with post-traumatic stress disorder, people who are currently addicts also, those kinds of people, they're, they're red flags for a mindfulness teacher that you need to ask some more questions and really tailor a program. There, there have been situations where a very small minority of people have experienced difficulties and additional mental health problems from doing extended periods of uh, mindfulness meditation. So it's worth checking out. Okay. Well, that's really good to cover off because it's easy just to think it's a one-size-fits-all approach, yeah. but it sounds like there are a lot of things you need to be aware of. And I guess with when you work with individuals and, and groups and companies and so forth, how do you actually teach or assess if people are suitable for mindfulness is are there steps is there an app i mean how do people really get started okay so firstly with the mindfulness-based stress reduction program there's a pre-program interview just to check that the person is an appropriate person to do the course and nearly they always are looking for some of the red flags that i mentioned yeah sure and I guess are there steps? Do you sort of with the program? I guess I'm curious to know whether it, it requires you to maybe once a week sign up to you know do a session with you. I mean, is there a process where you're teaching people so that eventually they can do this on their own wherever they are? Yeah, absolutely. So different programs have different approaches, but I think a fundamental building block of most mindfulness programs is to start teaching people how to self-regulate attention. Our attention normally moves from one thing to the next to the next, depending on what's most salient in that moment. And to learn firstly where your attention is and to develop the capacity to redirect the attention onto an anchor that's in the present moment is really skillful. From a neurological perspective, we move out of the default mode network of our brain, which is at higher levels of activity are associated with anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder and into a present moment awareness. And that's really skillful to be able to do that. No, um, it's very powerful stuff. I guess, you know, do you think employers have that moral responsibility? Obviously the individual has to make that choice, but we, for a long time, workplaces have kind of had the whole, let's give you a gym membership, let's have some healthy snacks in the office. I mean, that's obviously keeping you physically fit, but the moral and mental fitness as well, is there a responsibility that you think we need to be talking about? Yeah. The moral question, I think you'd need to ask a philosopher, but as a humble ex-lawyer, my understanding is that employers have a, an obligation to provide a safe environment for their employees. And safety is not just physical safety. It's also safe from unreasonable stress. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it would be great if, you know, I know a few workplaces that do actually have, you know, people come in and teach meditation or um, yoga at lunchtime and so forth. And I think some of those things opt in. And a lot of people, the irony is I think the most stressed people often might not take that up because they would be seen to be mm. slacking off, particularly in mm. those environments, say like a law firm or, you know, banking or anything like that where you it's really about, you know, work first. So I think yeah. maybe there's some, you know, cultural discussions which need to be had before probably more people might might take that on board just from my observation anyway. And anyway, so I guess some of the big businesses I do know are doing it, um, if not here overseas for sure, like Goldman Sachs and, and Google, for example. They seem to have embraced mindfulness into daily workplace cultures, 
But my argument is that perhaps they can afford to. So if you're a smaller business and you kind of, you know, you don't have a lot of extra fat, if you like, in your day, what what do you think they could do to help their employees? I think the starting point is that everything works better when people are able to manage stress, whether you're a big business or whether you're a small business. You know, the director of Google who started the Search Inside Yourself program, he didn't do it simply to benefit the individuals at the expense of Google. It was, they saw it very much as a situation which was of benefit to the organisation as well as to the individuals. So it can benefit the bottom line, I guess, if people are taking maybe perhaps less sick leave or performing better in the hours they're at work because they feel better or they're mentally more fit and alert. Uh, Yes, there's an argument to say. Absolutely. If people aren't waking up thinking, oh, no, I've got to go to work today, it's of benefit for for everybody. I think for a small business, it would be really important to have a couple of key people who are champions. So they may go out and skill themselves up and through other people observing the benefits that they are experiencing through developing mindfulness, other people get interested. I think it's really counterproductive to require anybody to do a mindfulness course. So, yeah, no, I think you're right. It has to be something that people kind of opt into in that sense. I guess when you're working with organisations, I know you work with individuals, but you also work with companies and other entities, if you like, what approach do you take? I mean, do you find that they are approaching you or are you sort of pitching yourself and kind of educating them about the benefits of mindfulness? Yeah, with companies, I only respond to requests. I don't want to be going in and having to sell mindfulness. So my approach in the work with I've done with companies is to respond to requests. If they're interested, I'm interested in working with them. And I prefer working with a leadership team so that, again, there is the support of people who are seen as being important in the organisation and then others are more likely to follow. So I I will work with the leadership team, work with individuals. I do some one-on-one mindfulness coaching with key people in the organisation and then also run programs which could be multi-week programs, my preference, or just like a half-day seminar, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And do you find there's been increasing demand? I mean, obviously, I've become aware of mindfulness probably in the past five years just through exposure Mm. to, I guess, I read very widely and always curious about ways to have a better quality of life and keep myself mentally and physically fit to be a working mom and all the things that I do. But have you found that there's been sort of some sort of spike in interest? Yeah, and I think that's a a dual, um, there are a couple of causes there. One is the significant research that has come out of the University of Massachusetts and other institutions that have been researching the impact of these multi-week mindfulness courses. And the other is our crazy work life. Um, You mentioned earlier how technology has now come into our lives and there's no clear demarcation between work and home. We're all trying to multitask, which the research shows that is in fact impossible when we're doing complex task switch rather than multitask. There is a cognitive cost every time we move from one task to the other. So both the research showing really good results and the difficulty of maintaining balance in our present modern work life, I think, have come together to mean that mindfulness is an obvious response to help people deal with the present situation. 
So yes, it's becoming much more popular and well-known, as you say. And I guess as an academic, have you done any of your own research into, I guess, the long-term benefits of mindfulness so that, you know, I guess some of us who might be skeptics who might be listening won't think, oh, this is just a fad, you know, this is the next, this is the new 5-2 diet or, you know, this is the thing where yeah. I'll do it for a while and then I'll find something else. How, how do we know Indeed. it has a long-term impact? I think that for some people, mindfulness will end up being a fad, but the reality is that it's now recognised as an evidence-based program through the US National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices, and it's really hard to get onto that registry, and that there is now 30 plus years of scientific research looking at what happens through a mindfulness process, both in terms of physical and mental health, as well as what's happening in the brain. People are being tested before going into the eight-week MBSR program and MBCT program, and then after. And they're showing, they're finding that there are structural as well as functional changes to the brain in an eight-week program. For example, they find that the part of the brain which sets off the fight or flight response or is a key component to it, the amygdala, that decreases in size measurably over the eight weeks. It calms down. The part of the brain that's that's involved in... So there are actually sort of that... If we're into the evidence, because I do love a bit of evidence, former journalist, always need to have the proof. Even in eight weeks, you can have quite significant changes for the better. Yes, absolutely. Now, the eight-week program that I'm talking about is an intense eight-week program. Mindfulness-based stress reduction requires people to sign up to do 45 to 60 minutes practice a day. Um, And one of the concerns that I have around how people talk about mindfulness is that they'll use the evidence from this intense program and say, oh, use my app and get all of these benefits. Uh, Actually, your app hasn't had any of the research done into it. Those benefits come from doing, you know, the eight-week course with this significant amount of daily practice. So be careful when you hear claims being made about mindfulness and the ways that it will be obtained. No, I think that's a great point because everything always has to you have a bit have to have a bit of caution and you do your own research before you perhaps sign up to anything. Yeah. Um changing tack a little bit. I'm a big believer no one's really got to where they are or the point in life, you know, where they're at without mentors or inspirational figures. And you don't have to name names. Sometimes you don't want to do that, but you know, are there any particular people who have really helped you on this journey to your purpose and what have they taught you? Um the I have been attending regular mindfulness and meditation classes and retreats for for many, many years. And all of those teachers for me have been an important part of understanding how it is to be a human being and understanding how it might be to develop attitudes and approaches to be the kind of human being I'd like to be. So, you know, I have been very aware of reactivity. I've been very aware of getting caught in situations mentally and emotionally and the the difficulties that come when I'm caught up in that. Observing and listening to teachers about an alternative way of being. So rather than pick out any individual, it's really the ongoing daily, weekly engagement with this messy process of being a human and listening and learning from others about ways that we can do it better. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. I think, like you say, it's obviously a cumulative thing as well. 
just to wrap up, if you could close off and uh, give listeners out there, if you if you can think of top three or top two ways that people can kind of just start that journey if they want to get ahead and understand mindfulness. Uh, I I think, you know, just learn about your own mind. Sit with it. Observe it. Stay with it, even when you feel some discomfort there. And this does require time and having a good teacher is very supportive for this process. So that's the first one. Learn about your own mind. The second one is become an expert in reactivity, in your reactivity. So, you know, we know those times when, oh, we're what they call upregulated. You know, we're ready to take it on or we're running away. Observe what happens in your body, what's happening in your thoughts, your judgments, your impulses, your emotions. What's going on when you're in a situation of reactivity that you don't like? Rather than running away from that situation, going into our normal avoidance aversion, learn from it. And so we're making some space between that moment and our reaction to it. That's the second. And I think the third one for me is learn how to cultivate a mind and a heart that is peaceful and caring. The research shows that doing that gives you personally physical health benefits as well as mental health benefits. It's good for your relationships. It's good for everybody. So learn about your own mind, become an expert in reactivity, learn how to cultivate a mind and heart that's peaceful and caring. That's really powerful advice, which I think a lot of people will take away. So we really do appreciate your time today to talk about the politics of mindfulness. If you do want to connect further with Catherine, there'll be some details of her social media links on our show notes. You've been listening to The Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep well. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed The Politics of Everything, we thrive on feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network and your friends and family. I'm also always on the hunt for fabulous new guests. So if you've got a view to share and an idea how to get our listeners excited, please email me at amber at bespokecoms, that's B-E-S-P-O-K-E-C-O-M-M-S dot com dot A-U and we'll be sure to get back to you. Until next time.